we are loyal and loyalty is is very common in business but it's what he calls polygamously loyal um and essentially <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> essentially what that means is exactly what it sounds uh-huh. like we're loyal to a handful of brands yeah Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. Sound plays a more important role in human behavior and our decision-making than you may realize. In this podcast, I'll help you understand the art and science of sound so you can better influence others in business and your life. I'm your host, Jody Krangle. Let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Austin Frankie. My next guest is the founder and behavioral strategist at WooPunch a brand communications consultancy. As a brand design and advertising consultant, he helps brands construct and establish memory structures in their customers' brains over time. I'm sure you can see why he'd make a great person to talk to on this podcast. As a mission consultant, he leverages behavioral science to help business owners pursue the long-term good of their company, their employees, and their customers without sacrificing their personal lives. As a writer, he exposes the lies of business gurus with empirical evidence that directly debunks their claims. He has a simple message. Customers don't think about brands. Advertising primarily serves one purpose, to remind customers, consciously and unconsciously, that brands exist. Sounds pretty plain to me. His name is Austin Frankie, and we're definitely going to get into the nitty-gritty when it comes to getting and holding a potential client's attention. How does this work? And how can we make it work better without being sleazy? Let's find out. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me today, Austin. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for having me. I have already done an introduction, so people will know who you are, but I want to get into Mm -hmm. more of that nitty gritty. The first question I want to ask you, though, is if you have an early memory of how sound moved you. I always like to ask people that just because Mm. it's amazing how much it does influence us and everything that we do. So I'm curious if you had a moment like that. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know of a specific moment, but um, I... uh, so my uncle was a musician um, growing up, and uh, maybe that's part of why I took piano lessons from a very early age, kindergarten, I think. Um, I, I still can't play piano that well because um, I, I wasn't interested in it at the time. Um, but at, at one point, um, I started to um, discover the beauty of, of writing my own music um, at some point when I was learning guitar with my teacher. Um, and, and I, I've, I've really been a songwriter ever since in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't spend too much time doing it anymore these days, but I have a lot in the past. And so, um, so, that, so music, music was always important to me. And then, and then now I think, um, uh, I notice it from an emotional standpoint. Um, uh, when I listen to jazz, Oh, okay. <laughs> it, it just literally transports me to another place. Um, and, uh, I don't know of any other genre that's ever really done that for me uh, in that way. So, um, and then from a business standpoint, I think the earliest memory of me understanding the value of sound was an interesting podcast episode I listened to of some show where somebody was on talking about um, uh, products and how um, they physically will often have different sounds. So a, a soda can, for example, is not the best um, means to transport or, you know, use, uh, 
soda, but because of that little refreshing sound that the tab makes, um, all the all the companies still use it. It's it's actually more of apparently, yeah. according to this podcast, at least more of a sound thing than a than anything else. So I, I thought that was really interesting That's that we can very be subtly cool. influenced by. Um, physical sounds and products as well. Yeah. The Snapple pop is the same way. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Right. <laughs> They've actually worked yeah. out a way to do that with plastic bottles. They've been because they have okay. a they have a glass <laughs> bottle, right? right. So right. for the same reason that you were talking about yeah. the Coke can being much more of a satisfying sound, Snapple did the same thing. They researched wow. a lot until they could make <laughs> the same sound happen huh. on their plastic bottles that happened on the glass bottles. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm gonna have to go about and buy a Snapple. I'm now, curious so. <laughs> now too. I haven't had a Snapple in a long time, but but it is it's a curious thing. Yeah. <laughs> So you're in behavioral science as it pertains to advertising and marketing. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. so love that because this is all psychology, isn't it? I mean, it really, it totally is. So what got you interested in that? How did you get started with that? Yeah. So, so I think, um, in the beginning when I first, um, so I, I left a, a nonprofit after working for them for about eight years, um, and started my own branding business. And in the beginning, um, I didn't know anything about behavioral science. All I knew was what the biggest names and brand strategy were saying to do um, until I, I, so essentially that means um, build love in the customer and form a deep relationship with them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then all your customers will start a tribe and um, <laughs> uh, engage with them, start a conversation online, all these, these different things. Um, and so I really leaned very heavily into that until I uh, read um, a couple of books early on when I wasn't getting any clients and I had time to really learn to be as good at, at what I did as possible. Um, and, uh, discovered a couple of books that made me question everything. Cause it was the first time that I had, um, heard anyone talk about behavioral science in general, but much less in, in regards to branding. And so then I, I went down a, um, a behavioral science path outside of branding, just in general, how does it work and what does it, um, what does it mean? Um, and then, can you um, explain for people who don't know? I mean, cause yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, I think that, um, the the overall gist of behavioral science is it's 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 essentially a study of human behavior, sure. um, how we make decisions, really, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we make a ton of decisions, like millions of decisions every day, micro and macro. Um, uh, you know, we make a decision to blink, even though we don't consciously think about that decision. We make a decision to put one step, one foot in front of the other when we walk, and then we make a decision. Sometimes, you know, there's there was a day where I made a decision in my mind I was going to marry my wife, the biggest decision I probably will ever make. Sure. Um, and 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 this is really what our day to day life looks like. And so, behavioral science kind of looks under the hood to see. Um, how do we make decisions? Um, uh, what does that look like? And, uh, and yeah, I'm just fascinated by it. I, I think um, uh, I, I, I'm very intrigued by the idea that most of our decisions happen without us ever knowing that we're making them. Yeah, yeah. Unconsciously. Yeah, we're exactly. being led. Yeah, yeah. We are, yes. <laughs> it's interesting. And that's, that's the job of advertising is it, to lead. Really. It totally is. Yeah. So going down that rabbit hole, what were some of the books mm-hmm. that you read that told you all about this in advertising? Yeah. So the, the first, the very first book, book that I read was, was called Brand Seduction. And, and it was a good book. I, I enjoyed it. Um, uh, but it really served more of a purpose of to just get me to think about 
okay, um, brands are all around us and um, uh, we make very, uh, you know, a lot of decisions about brands, but most of them aren't, aren't very serious decisions and they're pretty trivial. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. And then, um, and then I read a, a fascinating book about advertising specifically called Seducing the Subconscious um, by a professor, Robert Heath. Uh, I can't remember where he's, he's from, but um, a really interesting book that really, it first lays out all of the theories, the psychological and as, as well as neuroscience and behavioral science theories about um, <clears throat> what makes advertisements effective. Um, it, and, and then he proposes a new model, given what we know about how our brains work and how we make decisions that, that essentially suggests that advertising is largely subconscious and <laughs> okay. that the, the industry standard of persuade the customer to buy um, rarely ever works um, and is not nearly as powerful as um, uh, uh, customers essentially um, taking in an ad peripherally mm -hmm. almost, um, both audio and visual. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then that does that light um does that lead into Byron Sharp is that Yeah so yeah we we talked about Byron yeah, Sharp yeah. earlier so so after I had really uh dug deep into behavioral science and like went down that path really hard <laughs> You say path I say rabbit hole <laughs> Yes I I often say rabbit hole too Yeah, yeah I, I I think I think the one of the like the way I see my role and what I'm doing within the marketing and advertising industry is essentially taking people behind the matrix to see how things actually work. Sure. Um, uh, and getting rid of all of the fluff. Do you want the um, blue pill or the red pill? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's exactly how it felt. When I came across this crossroads, it was, I can make a lot of money preaching customer loyalty and brand love uh -huh. and customer engagement. Everyone else's. There's a lot of really wealthy gurus preaching all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Or I could go after the truth, uh, which I think is more important, uh, and pursue that. And, and so, rare. Yeah, done. And rare, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but Byron Sharp, to get back to your original question, mm -hmm. um, after going down the rabbit hole of behavioral science and the psychology of advertising, um, I discovered Byron Sharp and everything he was saying perfectly synced up with everything that we know about um behavioral science, psych psychology, neuroscience, um, all of that. Um, but he, he approached it from a different way where he essentially took big businesses, medium-sized businesses and small businesses and looked for patterns to see how brands grow. Um, but even before him, um, the founder of his institute, Andrew Ehrenberg, was doing this research for 60 years. Um, Byron Sharp was really one of the first people to popularize it outside of um a very specific niche of of kind of marketing science yeah. um uh to where now big brands fortune 500 companies are are um uh are going down the rabbit hole as, <laughs> yeah. as she would say yeah um, uh, and yeah and so he just discovered a lot of myths that uh, marketers and advertisers have been saying for a long time yeah so yeah and and, and yeah with that background in behavioral science yeah I know we're all dealing with a lot these days, so I really wanted to acknowledge those that have gone out of their way to leave an honest review of this podcast. Like Edith, who writes, excellent job. I will recommend this podcast to my friend who is now working on their company branding. I believe that sound plays a great role in their company's brand, and I'm sure she will like this recommendation. Excellent job, Jody. Thanks so much, Edith. I'm so glad you and your friend find the podcast useful. I really appreciate your comments. 
And for those of you that are interested, you can also leave a voice review now off of the main podcast page. It's super simple, and I'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. That's that's a lot of really interesting information. And I'm, yeah, now I'm curious as to what were some of the things that he sort of debunked? <laughs> yeah. So the biggest thing that he talks about is, um, uh, or debunks, is the um, traditional concept of customer loyalty, which is this idea that if you can essentially um, uh, convince a customer to stay loyal to your brand and really exclusively loyal to your brand, they'll keep spending more money and more money and more money and they'll tell their friends about your brand. And um, and if you really want to grow, that's how you got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Byron Sharp came in and before him again, Andrew Ehrenberg came in and they said, uh, well, that's not what the actual behavior, purchase behavior of customers says. Um, that's not how, how we've seen by looking at empirical evidence that brands grow. Um, what they found out was that we are loyal and loyalty is is very common in business, but it's what he calls polygamously loyal. Um, and essentially, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> essentially what that means is exactly what it sounds uh-huh. like. We're loyal to a handful of brands. Yeah. Um, and the brands that have the highest loyalty are the biggest brands. Uh, loyalty is more of a side effect to brand growth and not the cause. Um, and in 60 years since Andrew Ehrenberg has been studying this and since, um, not one single brand um, that's ever been studied ever grew by prioritizing customer loyalty um, or heavy buyers and loyal customers over new buyers and light buyers. Um, <clears throat> so what they found is that even small small brands and big brands um, both uh, both share a similar pattern which means that <clears throat> from the very beginning of your brand getting started to the very end when it's you know coca-cola um, the way that you grow is by is by um, getting all buyers to buy a little bit more often um, and that does include loyal buyers but by far they make up a, t- a much smaller fraction of your revenue um, than the light buyers and the new buyers do that's really interesting. Yeah. And it actually seems like we cannot escape gravity. <laughs> mm, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's in everything, right? So the larger yeah. companies have more gravitational pull. <laughs> mm, exactly. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and, and even, you know, from a standpoint of, of a lot of marketers and advertisers trying to change what works, mm-hmm. uh, hoping that something else would work, hoping that loyalty and relationships are the key to growth. We, I think we all want that. We all, as marketers and advertisers, we, we want... Uh, customers to notice us and mm-hmm. love us. Yeah. Um, and so we really go down this destructive path of, of trying to get that attention instead of, um, instead of really um, what uh, Robert Heath and Seducing the Subconscious would say is um, almost every single ad is processed with zero attention. <laughs> um, they're processed implicitly yeah, yeah. Uh, and peripherally. Um, and I think that's a big difference. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and as far as sound is concerned, because you can mm. listen and do other things, it actually becomes right. more effective. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I- I'm wondering how that would play into the whole behavioral science aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yeah. So if you can yeah. speak to that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I definitely can. So um, uh, I think to 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 start off, um, uh, I want to debunk a myth called the Mad Men myth that I I coined myself. <laughs> okay. Sure. Um, uh, <laughs> I I 
I love the show Mad Men. I think it's one of the greatest shows to ever be made um, from a historical accuracy standpoint, acting, storyline, character development. But Don Draper is not a good advertiser. (laughs) And what I mean by that, (laughs) what I mean by that is throughout the entire show, I don't think I ever remembered him ever once mentioning um, uh, uh, what makes an advertisement effective, which is essentially... um, uh, it's it's implicit processing of the ad, um, and you essentially do that um, by building memory structures in customers' brains, uh, uh, so that when they're ready to buy from your category, they buy your brand. Uh, and and one of the ways, one of the really important ways to do that is through audio. Um, and and yet Don Draper, you know, he kind of looks down on his designers. Uh, I don't think any audio production company has ever featured in an episode. Uh, <laughs> he, he doesn't talk about jingles. He comes into the boardroom and he says, this is how we're going to. And he does in a lot of ways. He utilizes behavioral science by getting beneath what the customers really want. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really his specialty. And that's that's great. That, that can be effective. Um, but it's not going to persuade customers because customers usually don't buy brands because they were persuaded by them. They buy them because consistently over time, the brand put a bug in their ear yeah. and in their eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Don Draper doesn't talk about that. And, and, um, and neither do most marketers and advertisers um, today. They're, they're, they've really fallen prey to the Mad Men myth. They're, they're pursuing uh, the persuasion model of advertising. Um, and it's just not been proven to be very effective in most situations. Now, if you're looking to buy a car at that very moment and, um, uh, you know, you in that ad featuring Volvo, uh, talks that talks about safety, uh, uh, safety is the most important thing that you're looking for right now in a car Mm -hmm. and you're going to buy a car tomorrow, then that ad might be effective. Um, (laughs) but if you, if, if you're not in the, the business, if you're not in the, um, uh, yeah, if you're not looking for a car in that moment, uh, and they don't advertise to you a lot, then when it comes time to buy a car, that whole message of safety in Volvo is going to get completely lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and and meanwhile, Honda, which is releasing a ton of ads, and Toyota and Ford, um, which are not only releasing ads, but they're physically all over the roads, mm-hmm. and their dealerships are closer to you every step of the way, um, you're going to buy one of them. And I say this as the son of a Volvo dealer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, so the consistency of the message and the frequency of the message mm, exactly. are what's really important. Yeah. Exactly. It exactly. seems to me like jingles would have been a really big thing for that, especially yes. back in the Mad Men days. <laughs> yes. It, it, yeah. And 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 they they were. So what we've seen in uh, we've seen a very sharp downward turn in advertising effectiveness. And with that, uh, researchers have found a sharp decline in creativity. And not just like creativity in terms of, um, you know, pulling at heartstrings or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm talking about like puppy monkey baby that immediately <laughs> like <laughs> disrupts everything you're doing in the moment yeah. to be like, what? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my God, that's disturbing. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so what we've seen is is um, jingles have have become practically non-existent, um, and with that, advertising effectiveness has also gone down. Um, and, and part of that is part of that is real. Part of that is jingles became cheesy. They became a cliche. Everyone was using them, mm-hmm. and that's not effective. If you're going to release an ad, you don't want to just do the same thing everyone else is doing. Obviously. Um, but, uh, uh, there are a lot of ways you can be very creative with jingles and that's what you see Arby's doing, you know, they don't really have a jingle. They do the, dur, 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 we have the meat. Yeah, right? yeah. That's a jingle. Yeah. That's make no mistake about it. Yeah. That's a tagline with audio enhancements and a melody. It's a jingle, right? Um, and, uh, State Farm of course has done this too, where they used to have the cheesy jingle and they brought it back, but in a more clever way. First, with their ads where somebody would just like say the jingle and a State Farm representative would show up magically. Um, <laughs> but they didn't do the whole jingle. There's like, you know, uh, like a good neighbor and then they show up. Sure, right? yeah. Um, and then eventually now they just do that do, 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 you know, and then they start their ad. Yeah. Um, and so without ever looking up at their ad, you know, it's a State Farm ad. And, and, and we know that the um, the goal of advertising is essentially to remind customers you exist mm-hmm. um, when they are ready to buy. Um, and uh, if you're looking at your phone and you hear a jingle, you're reminded the brand exists. We all remember our the the jingles that aren't around anymore. Toys R Us, yeah. you know, has gone bankrupt not because their jingle wasn't effective, no. but because Amazon, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, so it's just interesting to to. I think jingles should make a comeback for sure. And, um, uh, and, and we, uh, uh, there's, uh, Byron Sharp has a colleague, uh, her name is uh, Ginny, uh, Romanak. I think that's, I'm pronouncing it right. But, um, she talks about distinctive brand assets, which essentially are little elements that can help you, um, to be quickly identified as your brand and not someone else's. Um, and she talks about, um, essentially elements that are proxies for the brand, where if you took the brand name away, you took uh, the logo away, you took everything else away, and you just played the State Farm jingle and maybe even blocked out the name, um, uh, then uh, that can add as a proxy, that can replace a brand by itself. And that's really the goal. And she found with audio assets in particular, so there's visual, there's audio, there's all kinds of assets, but um, with audio assets in particular, the jingle uh, in her research has been the most effective of all of them. Um, and so, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You can incorporate the brand name. Um, so it's e- it makes it easier to memorize the brand name. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, and then as well, um, there's less mental competition because it's an original song. Yeah. Um, if you took took a pop song and you replaced your brand name, the pop song is not nearly as effective as creating your own song. Sure. And in yeah. a lot of instances, especially in, um, you know, uh, ear cons and things like that. Exactly. You can exactly. use them around yeah. the world and it doesn't matter what language right. they speak. Right. So right. precisely. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot to be said for that consistent repetition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the key to growth. You're not going to grow without it. Yeah. You really aren't. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Are you looking for ways to improve your company's or podcast's impact? You'd be surprised how powerful the use of an intentional audio branding strategy can be. Want to know more? I have a free downloadable PDF that gives you my five tips for implementing an intentional audio strategy at voiceoversandvocals.com slash audio branding strategy. That location does ask to put you on a mailing list just to send you updates on when the new podcasts come out. 
But if you really don't want to give your email out, I understand. Just contact me directly. My email is all over my website, and I'll make sure you get that PDF without needing to sign up anywhere. If you do sign up though, you also get access to a resources section called The Studio, where I have videos, white papers and PDFs, discounts from my guests, and snippets of audio from my guests that no one else gets to hear. So maybe it's worth your while. Totally up to you. And of course, if you're looking for voiceovers, you can get in touch with me about that too. Now, back to the podcast. You, I think the last time we spoke, you talked about the insurance uh, industry as a particular case study. <laughs> yeah. And I, right. I'm curious if you could go into that for, for our, for, you know, the person that's listening here, because yeah. I think that, <laughs> that uh, they would find it very interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So I, I, um, uh, I, I talk with and work with a lot of startups um, and uh, the culture of startup, the, the startup culture is very much obsessed with new innovations, inventions, and brand new ideas. Um, and, uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, human beings avoid, uh, the novel as much as possible. And so, um, innovations and disrupting, you know, disruptors, uh, only come around once every blue moon mm-hmm. and, and, you know, a tiny fraction of them are, are ever successful like Uber, which is also based off of a familiar idea of taxis. Sure. Um, uh, I, I only say that, um, because I think, if if the startup world and culture would focus on disrupting an industry that isn't advertising and is not using distinctive brand assets, um, they would have a much better chance at growing a business. Um, and I think a great example of a company that did that is Geico. Now, Geico wasn't a startup. They were around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but at one point, Warren Buffett invested in them heavily uh, and said, you know, I'm going to give you this investment, but I want you to really prioritize advertising. Um, and so they did. And early on, they came up with the Geico Gecko. Um, and, <laughs> yes. uh, at, before the Geico Gecko and before Geico really started advertising in this in this way, um, insurance was was mostly a service. Um, it was viewed as a service and it was viewed as like a service that like you pass down to your grandkids. You know, my dad had a, a State Farm agent. And then when I got my first car, I got a State Farm agent, right? Um, <laughs> <Okay>. And the, <laughs> the same State Farm agent. Uh, and, uh, and Geico came in and said, this doesn't, this doesn't have to be the way it is. What if insurance is, is viewed more as uh, a commodity? Um, instead of a service that you stay with forever, it could be a commodity that you jump around with. Um, and a, very much a Byron Sharp idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and so they came through with a very distinctive character who had a very distinctive voice um, uh, that used the name and, and associated Geico with Gecko um, uh, really well and and cleverly. And, and, and it was engaging and fun at first. And then it got, of course, um, uh, played out, but that's the whole point of an ad. Sure. And that's the whole point of a distinctive asset for mm-hmm. it to get played out. Um, uh, and then, uh, Geico just boomed, uh, and they just started doing really well. And then you start seeing all of these other insurance agencies doing the same thing. <laughs> yes. Um, show slowly, but surely first came Aflac, um, <laughs> who no one really knew about. I don't know actually if Aflac was a startup or not. I have no idea. Um, but they very well could have been. Um, and again, a, a character with a unique voice that incorporates the name into their audio assets. 
Uh, and then, of course, both of these characters had visual assets as well. The Affleck duck looked a certain way. The Geico gecko looked a certain way. Um, but audio was really what made those advertisements work. Um, and then you see uh, Progressive and Flow. And then you see, again, a character um, with a unique voice. And I, they probably incorporated some sort of earcon or something, if I were to guess. I just don't know about that. And then Allstate has the very unique voiceover guy um, uh, who wasn't a celebrity, which is actually really important for an audio asset, um, uh, a voiceover asset to be uh, useful because there's no mental competition. If, um, uh, In fact, the actor who plays Don Draper in Mad Men did some sort of Lexus or some some car company ads for a while, mm -hmm. but um, I don't know the data on it, but they wouldn't have been as effective because people would have been like, oh, Don Draper, okay, <laughs> what's he doing selling cars, right? But the uh, unfortunately for the Allstate guy, his career hadn't taken off too much, um, even though he was, he was recognizable. Um, uh, and he was more of a character actor and a, a character voice in a lot of ways because his voice was so distinct. That's a good um, gig to have. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's a very good gig to have. I mean, if, for ev all of your listeners who are, who are voiceover actors, you want that gig. Oh, That's, yeah, you know, yeah. If, if you're talking about commercial voice acting outside of narratives or whatever, and probably even with that, of course, every cartoon character or, or whatever has their own distinct voice usually. Um, and then finally, you see State Farm bringing back um, their old jingle and incorporating that in new and fun ways. And and now they're very they're leaning very heavily into that as well. Um, they they all followed Geico and Affleck for a reason. They wouldn't have just followed them if if they looked at the data and those brands weren't effective. They were very effective. Um, and uh, Geico disrupted an entire industry. Um, and I think the insurance industry is the best example I can think of right now. Um, that really leverages audio assets. I think fast food is doing it a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the Arby's one. And before that, obviously, you have McDonald's. Yeah. Um, um, but I think the insurance company is, is a great example that I've noticed. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, it is yeah. a really interesting study because, as you say, insurance was completely different before they started advertising that mm -hmm. way. So <laughs> that's exactly. a really interesting case study. Yeah. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, why not tell a friend about this podcast? It's available in all the usual locations. Until next time. Until next time.